0: This week's show is sponsored by Factor, America's number one ready-to-eat meal kit, which can help you fuel up fast with flavourful and nutritious ready-to-eat meals delivered straight to your door. Head to factormealscom slash edition50 and use code edition50 to get 50% off your first box. <laughs> to The Edition podcast. I'm your host, Charlotte Henry. We've got a very exciting episode this week because I'm joined by Rob Burley, who, well, if there's a job in television broadcasting and political broadcasting he hasn't done, it's not worth doing. How are you, Rob?
1: I'm very well. It's really nice to be with you, Charlotte. Thank you very much. I'm
0: thrilled to have you because you've just released a book uh, just a few days ago called why is this lying bastard lying to me? And yes. it sums up your 30 plus years in political broadcasting in which you really came to specialise in this big set piece, political interviews. Mm-hmm. Now, let's go back to the start. It's right at the start of the book and I really enjoyed reading this segment.
1: Mm.
0: Why did you get captured by the political interview, first of all?
1: Well, I think in a, on one level, I got captured by the political interview because it was on telly um and there weren't there, there wasn't a great when i was when i was growing up in the uk in the 70s and the 80s, the 80s um you know we did, we only had three 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 tv channels until about 1982 and then we had four um and so i found myself um uh watching political programs because there was nothing else to watch and this i went alongside my dad who was a uh, a teacher and a historian and um uh we used to spend a lot of time talking about politics um, because he'd actually gone what we call self-sufficient. He, he tried to be a sort of farmer on a small, <laughs> on a small uh, piece of land in Sussex. Um, I'm afraid very disastrously, but um, and during that time, that meant I had a lot of time as a, as a child and growing up to spend up the garden with him talking about these issues. And, and, and that would then get me to watch these programs. And so then, um, you know, at a certain point I started to understand a bit more of what they were actually about and be pulled into the drama of the of an encounter between two people, one who's trying to find something out or trying to test a very powerful person, and the powerful person who's trying to push back at that, and, and uh, that Titanic kind of battle between between two gladiators in in current affairs and news and politics, kind of really got me going.
0: Yeah, and nowadays we tend to think of maybe if you get six, seven minutes out of a leading politician, you've done well. Mm. Uh, you recall one episode where Margaret Thatcher, as prime minister, two days after she'd lost her chancellor, had gave a 46, 47 minute interview. That's unthinkable
1: now. Yeah, it is unthinkable now and it, and it shouldn't be. It's, you know, it's kind of, if there's a, I mean, this, this book is not a, it's not a, um, uh, it's hopefully a, a good fun read. It's got lots of stories in it. It's got lots of fun in it and jokes and stuff to go to sort of sweeten the pill of what's a message, which is, that form of long form interviews is absolutely uh, vital and uh, a, un- a sort of a unique thing to British political culture, the nature of it. It's not deferential. It's, uh, it, it's, it's, it's kind of accountability stuff and that uh, that has really been lost. Um, and it's a big loss for us here uh, in, in the UK to, to lose that. And uh, yeah, you're right. Those programs lasted, we week- can, a show called weekend world It lasted for an hour. The first 20 minutes of it, or, 20, or 15 to 20 minutes of it. We generally, it was a very, very dense piece of analysis about the specific policy areas to be discussed um, on the programme. By the time Mrs Thatcher was there in 1989, it was just um, pure and simple. Brian Walden, who was a former Labour member of Parliament in the UK, who then became a very famous broadcaster doing these interviews alongside Mrs Thatcher for 46 minutes. And it was very consequential. It was in many ways, in my view. Uh, the most consequential interview on British television history, British television history, and was our Frost-Nixon moment. Mm.
0: Yes, because in America, there obviously are these major set piece interviews, that Frost-Nixon one, which really does matter. But do you think there's something quite specific to British media culture Mm. that demands, or used to demand, because we'll come on to what goes on now, um, that leading politicians sit down with the kind of big beasts of television interviewing?
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't know how many interviews Joe Biden has done. Uh, I, I don't think I, hardly any. Um, so, and 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 if he if he considers doing an interview, it'll, it'll probably be with MSNBC or CNN, and and he'll feel he'll feel um, more comfortable in that setting. So, so yeah, it's a very different culture. By the way, Frost Nixon, don't forget who uh, David Frost was. It was British. British, yes. Yeah, uh, John Burt, who was who people won't know him around the world, but he was a hugely significant. Uh, Figure in British broadcasting, who was the the editor of Weekend World, the founding editor of Weekend World, helped him on that interview with David Frost. In fact, it's a collision. That's why it's such a dramatic moment of of that kind of British culture of accountability with uh, with with a with a, a more deferential uh, expectation, perhaps, on on, the, on in the mind of the former president that day, uh, those days when they did those interviews. Um, and actually, what you get is magic because it was forensic. I mean, Frost wasn't naturally a forensic interviewer, but he was trained very well that day. Uh, when, he, when he really delivered it with John Burt, uh, by John Burt. So, you know, that 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 shows that just shows the difference in the culture. And um, the culture was alive and well in 1989 um, and actually was the high watermark, as it turned out.
0: Mm. There is a very specific skill these interviewers have to have. And you've worked with some of the greats here in the UK. You've worked with Andrew Neil, You've worked with Jeremy Paxman. You've worked with Laura Coonsberg, You now work with Beth Rigby at Sky. You've worked with mm-hmm. Andrew Marr. Mm-hmm. These are... Great, great interviewers. What have you seen? What makes journalists or broadcasters great interviewers?
1: No, that's a good, really, really, really good question. I think there are sort of, there are, and there are two sort of things that come to mind immediately, and they they sort of um, they they map from the kind of what what's a successful political interview. So on the one hand, and this is where someone like Andrew Neil, who's uh, you know former Sunday Times editor, um, a very big beast, a man. From the right, who understands business and finance and all those things, hefty guy. He is the guy you want when you want to prosecute something. Okay, so he's thats what he's brilliant at. And so that's so that's one poll. And the other poll is, is more where maybe the Andrew Marr approach might come in, which is more where you might open people up to talk a little bit more about what they think. You're not simply prosecuting or being forensic. You're creating a more genial environment, but one that sort of allows people to slightly kick their shoes off and s- start talking um so those are the two the two which is not to say by the way that those people couldn't turn their hand to the opposite kind of interview but that was where they really excelled and then the, in between that there's people who kind of you know sort of bridge that gap like someone like emily Maitlis i mean who are in who present he was a former presenter of a huge show in the uk called newsnight, newsnight uh, yeah. and famously most famously was the interviewer of prince andrew uh, to disastrous um, effect for yes. prince andrew um in in the last few years she if I had to sort of choose someone with the range the ultimate range it would be it would be Emily because she can do both of those things and and anything else in between um, so accomplished is she, and so intelligent and open minded and all the things you want is it's so she 's amazing so yeah i 'll be very lucky to work with those people
0: uh, it's interesting you you highlight that range of skills. Because uh, I think that's right. I think sometimes um, the kind of Jeremy Paxman approach, you know, where he asked the then Conservative leader Michael Howard the same question what is it? How many times is it? 17 or something? He just it's, kept asking.
1: I think it's 13. And, and he, well, he was trying to be Conservative leader, Michael Howard. He did, didn't get to be in that time around. That time around. Fact, thanks um, to Jeremy.
0: <laughs> yeah. And it's just a very famous moment in British TV where Paxman had basically lost his temper and got fed up with being messed around and just kept asking the same question and I do think when you analyze these interviews sometimes the presenters they sometimes think it's their show as well and it can be a bit performative on their part Uh, is that fair
1: you're saying that tv presenters are performative that's an extraordinary (laughs) situation I mean I I don't know where you get that idea from I mean almost as if they've got massive oversized ego some of them Um, notoriously um,
0: modest um, television presenters
1: yeah yeah, yeah. Um, of course it's their show i mean this is the other thing the other thing that's magical about all this uh in my view is that it is it's it's a really important really serious thing but alongside it there is a bit of showbiz there is a bit of theater and that and that is in, in the service of the actual more worthy elements of the, of, of the process you can bring those things to bear so um the problem but also you know you said we'll come to what's happening now or later but in a way you bring us to that when you say that performative thing i don't mm. actually think jeremy was that I think that what's happened is people since then want to be like Jeremy mm. or uh, Andrew Neil said in a way, his legacy and Jeremy's legacy is a, it's that everyone wants to be a mini me um, and they can't do it, you know? And so they just do they and partly because they just don't have the skills, but also they don't even have the time with people. So they just go in and, with two feet, you know, they go in with a, with, with a hard, hard tackle and it's mm. n- rarely effective. It's performative. I mean, Piers Morgan is the ultimate of that. He's a very bad interviewer in my view. You know, very famous. Can't interview people for Toffee. He just he he he, he's. It's just about him saying stuff.
0: Yeah, because there is a balance, and the best people strike this, don't they? Of knowing when to put on a show, the presenters, but also knowing when to Mm -hmm. just shut up and let the person keep their interview, keep talking. And I think you were right to bring up Emily Maitlis and Prince Andrew, because thinking back to that interview, it's very pertinent. There are moments where. Uh, Emily Maitlis says almost nothing. She lets him just talk and get himself into a muddle. Uh, And if you've read uh, producer Sam McAllister's book, Scoops, she talks about how they basically couldn't believe what he was saying and basically tried to get out of the palace as quickly as possible. So he didn't realize what he would said, but Emily Maitlis had to go and do a tour and play nice with him. But it's very funny, but um, yeah, that ability to be quiet is also very crucial for these broadcasters as a skill, isn't it?
1: Absolutely, I I, I couldn't agree more. And um, in, in that, what's funny about the Andrew thing is, it's almost like the silence is he just sort of felt you know, it's like English embarrassment. You better fill the silences with a bit more sort of elaboration on the stupid thing I just said. I mean, in fact, there was there's a very good example um, towards the end of my time at the BBC. Um, which was which won an actually actually won a, a Royal Television Society prestigious award as the interview of the year. This was when I was the executive producer, so the, the editor was a guy called John Neal, who's a very talented um, editor who succeeded me on the Andrew Marr show. Um, and we I remember we spoke before this interview, which was with the um, with the Chinese ambassador at the time to the the UK, um, and we decided we really wanted this to be a different sort of interview with him because he'd been on the show before. And been able to effectively bat away charges, you know, about the Uyghurs. And he and he and he and he got away with it, really. And so we thought this time we had to do something different. And so what we did was show him that footage, which you may remember, which appeared to show people um being transported and uh, you know, lined up on platforms, uh, sort of with 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 guards with guns, and it just you know redolent of of you know the the worst crimes of, of the 20th century. What was going on there? And um, what John Neil, and Andrew did very successfully, and they planned this was they just decided not to say anything for long periods of, you know, so they would, he'd ask a question, let it roll, let this tape roll. uh, And then he'd deny it. And instead of jumping into the next question, he would just let him watch it a bit longer. And the effect was, was, was powerful.
0: Mm.
1: So yeah, you're absolutely right.
0: Yeah. No science can be very powerful. And, we have a tradition a bit, uh, I kind of feel we maybe copied this from the US, but it goes both ways of like that Sunday show tradition of getting the politicians of the week to discuss the stories of the week. But that has mm-hmm. compressed the kind of, not the scrutiny perhaps, but the kind of time these top presenters get with our politicians. And that's changed our media culture as well, hasn't it?
1: Yes, it's a very, uh, it's it's a negative, it's a negative development really i mean and it sort of started with david frost um in in the uk again coming back to, to sir david who um who's obviously a giant of tv um, broadcasting and and, and, and of interviewing because in in um, uh, in in the early 90s he, he he got a show on bbc one called breakfast with frost and, and it's in the the book actually does go into a lot of detail about how this how this was conceived that the way it was conceived was this was a place where the powerful would come it was a room as the, edit- as the editor of the show, Barney Jones, said, a room, a, room, a room where power sort of lived. And so it was somewhere where David Frost could bring the biggest names in the world and in Britain to talk about politics. What was lost by that, you get great names, was that there was a sort of loss of scrutiny and accountability. It became more of a case of what's in the papers, how can we make news stories, how can we just make impact by virtue of the fact we've got someone really, really famous. Um, and the Andrew Marr show, which succeeded it in the UK, sort of carried on that idea, but a bit less soft. Um, and that Andrew was, was program more a program you
0: led, wasn't it? At the Andrew Marsh show.
1: Well, uh, yeah, initially, initially though, in the period before I before I was involved, um, it was it, it was it wasn't m a million miles away from Frost, although it was a, a bit tougher. And then when I got there, I decided, especially in this age of the social media age, when you know scrutiny of what we do is 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 increased and people are, you know, able to communicate their feelings about what they're seeing. It was important to make that a more accountable space again, so, um, or for the first time, in fact. So I, I tried to introduce, in a gentle way, the kind of more forensic techniques that I'd already learned from London Weekend Television, into which was a, 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 a station um, the, where the Brian Mulder show was was originated, um, into that environment. So, and that's what we did. And so we 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 tried to find the best of both worlds. I mean, you can't have a, a presenter at nine o'clock in the morning on a Sunday bashing somebody around the head, but you can work hard to make it a more a more you know a more uncomfortable ride if you've got something to hide
0: more with rob burley in a minute but first i want to tell you about factor during the prime spring season you need wholesome convenient meals to energize you for the warmer more active days and keep you on track reaching your goals factor america's number one ready to eat meal kit can help you fuel up fast with ready to eat meals delivered straight to your door You'll save time, eat well and tackle everything on your to-do list. Factor lets you skip the trip to the grocery store and skip the chopping, prepping and cleaning up too. It's fresh, never frozen meals are ready in just two minutes so all you have to do is heat and enjoy then get back outside and soak up that warmer weather. They offer delicious, flavour-packed options on the menu each week to fit a variety of lifestyles from keto to calorie-smart, vegan and veggie and Protein Plus. Prepared by chefs and approved by dietitians, each meal has all of the ingredients you need to feel satisfied all day long while meeting your goals. And if you're looking to mix it up, you can add a protein to select vegan and veggie meals each week. The shredded chicken taco bowl with roasted corn salsa and cilantro lime sour cream looked particularly appealing to me. So did the truffle butter filet mignon with potato, leek mash and roasted carrots. Sound good? Head to factormeals.com. Dot com slash edition50 and use code edition50 to get 50% off your first box. That's code edition50 at factormeals.com slash edition50 to get 50% off your first box. Thanks to Factor for supporting the show. As you mentioned social media, I think perhaps us on the journalism side are as guilty of this as perhaps the politicians and people we interview because you can see as you're watching these shows that a lot of it is now designed to be clipped for social media. What people want is the 30 to 90 minute, 90 second clip that will go viral on Twitter or be a good YouTube clip. And that is, that's not really benefiting anyone. It's not benefiting the journalists because they're only aiming for that short little moment. They're not really getting into the conversation. It's not benefiting the viewers because they don't get that in depth. And really the politicians get to say their, you know, soundbite. And that's the clip and all talking to the, about the performative nature of some of the presenters, the presenter looks to, you know, put out their peacock feathers a bit, but mm. hasn't really got the big answer.
1: No, you're, you're absolutely right. But, but, you know, why is that arisen? I mean, obviously, okay. Social media can harness that stuff, but you know if you, if you're given a seven minute interview with a, pol- with a, with a, politician, uh politician uh, it's going to, and you, and you, and you as a presenter want to be as sort of noticed as a kind of modern day jeremy paxman then that sort of tempts you down that road so it's all a bit chicken and egg And you know this is why i argue this is why i argue that we need to actually go back to what we used to do which was committing time especially the bbc I and mean, the bbc really has no excuse for the, for this i mean they're they're a public service broadcaster you know there are there is there are there are many hours in which they could broadcast a program of this nature and we i, I led some of those programs and for example the andrew Neil show which was you know which was closed down effectively just after COVID yeah, you know, for no good reason. It was just, a, 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 it was, it was, it was regarded as not a ratings winner. And this is just, this is just not what public service broadcasting should be about. So if so you need to, what you need to do is you need to commit the time, commit the seriousness. You will have moments that will be dramatic um, and revealing, but you will also have moments that, or episodes that will be more hard work, but we all got to do some hard yards in the sort of, in our, you know, in in in, our, in terms of our civic responsibilities to sort of understand what's going on in the world and what we think about our government and what we want our policies to be, but if we're going to treat everyone like children who can only who can only watch something for a minute and a half, then we'll get the, you know, we'll get the outcome that that deserves.
0: But that it, is there what's needs happening to be in, it, in our yeah, media culture, is, isn't
1: it? it? Yeah, it is what's happening in our media culture. But but and actually, of course, you know, in terms of, I mean, the BBC's you know market failure is where you you need the BBC to step in and say, well, look, we're not going to be. Worrying overly. I mean, what happened? I've written in the book. What happened to the Andrew Neil show, for example, which was a serious interview show for half an hour in prime time in the evening? Was the decision was made effectively by schedulers at the BBC and with the agreement of the director general Tim Davie that that was uh, less important than whether or not they were winning certain amounts of viewers for factual entertainment shows that were running at that time in the week on BBC Two. In the long run, no one will remember those shows. OK, they might remember the interviews that changed things or or that held people accountable or created incredible moments of drama. They matter more. But in the short term thinking of the current leadership of the BBC, they were to be abandoned and Andrew Neil was to walk away. It's I, I just can't tell you how short sighted it is on so many in so many ways to do with you know, the perception of the BBC here in the the UK and also what the right thing to do is. So, you know, that's where we ended up.
0: You think the BBC in some ways is failing as a public broadcaster by not having those shows? You know, they obviously have Laura Koonsberg, who you've worked with on a Sunday morning, but, you know, Mm -hmm. we've discussed the format of that, which she, you know, she's very good, Laura Koonsberg, but she doesn't get 45 Mm. minutes or 30 minutes with someone. You, You think it's a sort of failure to the licence fee pair to not have that kind of interrogative interview show.
1: Absolutely. And we had them. We had, we had, the BBC had Andrew Neil, who arguably, if you had to have your top Trumps, you had to have your, your lineup of who were the very best, greatest political interviewers in British political TV history, he'd be up there. They had him. They lost him. And the reason they lost him was because they stopped making any programmes that he could make uh, because of the need to win... Viewers at seven in the evening for programs that none of us will remember in—I don't—they've forgotten them already. So you know, so they—it's—it's it's baffling to be honest.
0: Um, talking of Andrew Neil, he was yeah. famous slash notorious, whatever way you want to do it, for conducting uh, election uh, interviews with the party leaders in the run-up to elections. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and, and those did supply the kind of moments of drama. Uh, the moments of insight that you talk about. He,
1: Absolutely.
0: And they've basically gone, not only because Andrew Neil has left the BBC, but because uh, the politicians have decided they can simply not do them.
1: Well, we don't know if that's true. Uh, we well, do Boris know... Johnson
0: didn't turn up when you tried to get him, did he?
1: Yeah, uh, yeah. So look, the question here, and also Liz Truss avoided... In her leadership election, avoided serious scrutiny. Mm-hmm. But I mean, disgraceful on both on both uh, on on, a, on both of them, really. I yes, you make your view on that in the book pretty clear. Yeah, well, I'm good, and I I'm glad I, I'm glad that I do. It's it's it, I mean, but the question is, I mean, it's not it's not news to either of us that Boris Johnson is in, uninterested in the norms, is it? Right, we, we we're both Correct. pretty across that. So so th- because he transgresses the norms, does that mean that everyone in the future will take Boris Johnson's route? I hope, uh, and I'm not necessarily pessimistic about this, that we will see in the next set of, in the next general election, which will have to come at some point next year, interviews of that nature on the BBC and elsewhere. um, And I, you know, and the Rishi Sunak and uh, Keir Starmer will take part in them. I don't think because Boris Johnson decided to uh, avoid scrutiny and then look what, you know, look what happened next, right? So what happened next was a short premiership that ended in disaster because of, uh, you're talking yeah, about not Liz Truss. No, sorry, actually, I, I jumped ahead. to. I, I, I'll, I'll get to her in a second. I'm talking uh-huh. about Boris Johnson that first instance. Because, mm. you know, that lasted, That lasted what, three years? And um, yes. it ended in ignominy. It ended because there was a, a lack of honesty about, Very, you know, I won't go into all the detail, but we all know why, where that went. And that was a consequence of an attitude, which was also expressed in his refusal to, uh, A, his refusal to do those interviews with scrutiny, but also his pretense or the, the pretense on the part of his people that they were going to do it to ensure that his, his uh, opponent did take part in those interviews, Jeremy Corbyn at the time. So there's dishonor there. Um, I hope, I mean, in a way, Rishi Sunak. Uh,
0: Jeremy Corbyn should put, I did not have a good time with Andrew Dill.
1: No, it, it didn't go well. Um, but um, you know, I, I hope, I mean in a sense the offer that Rishi Sunak is kind of making to some extent to the country is, is the, is the ups are back in the room. Um and was
0: uh,
1: doing is, the same. Yeah. And so Liz Truss, who you mentioned, you know, she had a she also was, you know, I mean, she's got a, a nerve, that woman. I mean, I mean to, to, actu- <laughs> to actually to actually I'm sorry, but to to actually complain after having proposed a set of policies that were hugely radical, to complain that she wasn't really given a fair chance after her after her premiership crashed and burned, when she didn't do the thing that her ostensible heroine Mrs. Thatcher did, which was go out there. Make the argument, face the accountability questions, face all the all, all the difficulty of that, but say, look, it might be tough, but this is the right thing to do, which is what her, her heroine, Mrs. Thatcher, certainly did. To not do that and then and then to complain about it is just I you know extraordinary, really, to me. Uh, but anyway, as,
0: as journalists, sorry. do you think we have a responsibility to almost demand that, that, that the the top people get the chance to have that? be held to account do you think you know the BBC Sky News Channel 4 whatever almost have to demand that those kind of interviews happened
1: well the, the, you know the truth is Charlotte that no one can demand it there's there is no obligation this is where the norms come in you know so just so people understand no no most people running for office uh, or you know running seeking to be re-elected most of them don't want to go into a room with Andrew Neil They didn't want to go into the room with Jeremy Paxman when he was doing it. Um, You know, so they don't want to do that. But in the end, they all did it until Boris Johnson, because they adhered to the norms, because they recognised that this was a something that had always been done and B was valuable in a democratic election. And the fact that they, the fact that, so, so, you know, that's, we need those norms to be reestablished. And like I said, that's part of the offer that, that some people like Rishi Sunak seem to be making. So, Let's see whether they follow through in this in, in this particular area.
0: Is there anything on the side of the media companies that can help reset it back to the norm, do you think?
1: Well, clearly, you know, the, I mean, look, one, one of the things I'm doing with Beth Rigby is actually trying to do long form interviews. Mm-hmm. You know, we're trying to say you know, we're going to keep the flame alive. And, um, and I'm very proud to be involved in that. So we can offer the slots Um and we can, I mean, you know, I mean, I don't suppose there's going to be a great deal of cooperation between the between the broadcasters about getting the big interviews because you know they all want them and they're all in, all in competition. I mean, one thing I mentioned in the uh, in 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 the book, it's something that you always get to outrageous responses to here, but in the U.S., for example, is understood, which is that you might want to set some rules like they do in America in the elections about how you can, what you're going to do, when you're going to do it. And, how, and and obviously, ultimately, they can't compel people, but it will look very, very bad if you don't come. And forensic interviewing should be part of that agreed offer uh, that is put to the politicians. Um, I'm afraid, though, you know, I'm not sure there's the appetite for that.
0: You, because you're such a pro, have helped us segue into two of the last things I wanted to talk to you about, actually, which is, first of all, you very clearly feel that the debate format... has some benefits and some worthiness, Mm -hmm. but does not replace that long form interview.
1: Correct.
0: Um, And we've it was never a thing in the UK before until whatever it was, the 2010 election. We had the famous, I agree with Nick moments. And Mm -hmm. that was the first television debate between Nick Clegg, David Cameron, Sir Nick Clegg to us now, and uh, David Cameron and Gordon Brown are the the, uh, leaders of the three main parties in the UK. And now they've seemed to become the norm. But not, and actually, Boris Johnson didn't even turn up for those, did he? But
1: no, he did. No, he did. He did. He did do the uh, in the election. He did the debate. Jeremy Corbyn, Um, Theresa May didn't turn up in twenty seventeen.
0: Theresa May, yes. Um, But you, you don't think that they those debates, which again are quite American style leader debates, which and they're a very big part of the American media election cycle, and have Mm. sort of become part of it here. You don't feel they replace the long form interview, do you?
1: No, they're a different thing. And and obviously they they can have, they can have, you know, successful moments so they can have, um, uh, you know, encounters with members of the public. Uh, They can have encounters between the the two candidates that can be, that can be powerful. And, you know, they're having this, in, in American politics, there's a history of those such moments, you know, so that can happen. But they're not a sustained interview with somebody who really knows their stuff, who is going to test you. Uh, they're actually they're actually fairly easy, I think, to, to 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 kind of navigate if you are someone like Boris Johnson, for example. Coming back to him, who's got that kind of um, you know Oxbridge kind of debating society um, sort of history, um, someone who can sort of has muscle memory of how to um, uh, you know perform in a sort of in a certain environment, which appears to be a scrutinizing environment or an accountability environment that really has quite a lot of escape routes. Mm. Um Look at Tony Blair. He was brilliant at doing that in interviews, uh, in, in encounters with, with members of the public. They weren't debates, but he'd be, he'd be there with members of the public and he would, he would sort of bamboozle them with complications around Iraq, for example, that obscured exactly what, what we were talking about and obscured the, 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 you know, the difficulty he should have been in. Whereas when he's one-on-one forensic, it's a lot harder for him. Um, you know, so they'll be good at politicians are good at, the, at that stuff. So we need to offer something they're not so good at necessarily, which is a, a, a fair and properly pro, a proper length encounter with a skilled interviewer that who will really test them.
0: And just on that, we're, we're speaking a couple of days after Donald Trump's CNN town hall, uh, which was moderated mm-hmm. by the breakfast show host and chief correspondent. I believe her title is Caitlin Collins. Now, Mm-hmm. the clip obviously you and i in the uk so we couldn't sit down and watch the whole thing but i've seen clips uh the bits i've seen now obviously this is on cnn so obviously they're going to want to project it looking as good as possible uh, as i've written i thought Caitlin collins did pretty good fact checking him in real time but the, there mm-hmm. was a problem with the format that trump was basically on home turf he was in a mm-hmm. room with people who were cheering and supporting him and so it didn't ultimately didn't matter How hard the presenter went because he could eventually just bulldoze her and people around him would be cheering and clapping, and it did, you know, it's not going to shift much opinion again. That's it, feels like scrutiny, and to some extent it was, but it doesn't, it's different to sitting down with Trump for an hour, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I mean, clearly he would be unlikely to submit himself to that, but if he did do it, then. He would use the same techniques that he always uses. I mean, the problem with Trump was there are many problems with Trump, but the the, the problem here is Yeah, we're is running that... low. We haven't got time for that. <laughs> no, but what we, what we do have is the um is that we talked about norms, right? So if norms are out the window, the pro the, the so the problem here at least, if you are being untruthful, and that can be demonstrated by facts and evidence, and that is and it's absolutely clear what you know that what you're saying is not true. Then there is a sort of there's a price to pay for that. And now and people on your own side will acknowledge that fact and will say that's what's happened. Whereas of course, in, in US politics now, it, it doesn't matter that there's no evidence about the 2020 election being stolen, which it wasn't. That's irrelevant because him and his people will say it anyway. And there's no agreed set of truths anymore. Um so that's so that's so, and of course so you so he deploy the same, you know what? Well, you can never touch someone if they do that because you can't, they can never fail if they just. change reality you know to suit whatever they're saying at a given moment so i mean obviously he's a fundamental sort of threat to democratic values um the format you know it seems incredible that they should not have learned some lessons by you know i know that this is theoretically a a republican primary interview but given who he is the things that have happened to put him into a basically a sympathetic environment albeit with a presenter who did her best to test him is is just Again, I'm, 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 ba- I'm yet again baffled.
0: Yeah. I, while I have, you know, I understand that you can't just ignore Trump and just let him place whatever he wants on true social. You do have to bring him into the mainstream media and try and challenge him in that environment. The kind of idea of an audience and questions from that audience did seem somewhat problematic.
1: Well. I mean, the thing is, you yeah. know, you, you can have an audience. I mean, there's a there's a tradition of having audiences here in the UK, but they're, they're they are produced very carefully to be balanced. So, sure, you you might have an audience which included some of the Maga brigade, but you know, you also need to have, uh, you know, other people, other views that are more represent that represent the country, you know, as far as you can, so that you don't just have a cheering mob who back the liar, you know, and that's what that's what he got, I and mean, so it was a mistake, a big mistake.
0: Well, it's been fascinating talking to you. It'll be fascinating to see what comes next in both election cycles on both sides of the Atlantic, because really we should be seeing these type of the media demanding that they have in-depth conversations with these leading candidates. Mm. I I fear we're now in the territory of social media clips and sound bites and we might not get that. But
1: uh, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sure. sure all I can do, Charlotte, I can make the argument and maybe forlorn, but I can try.
0: <laughs> well, it's made in your book. Why is this lying bastard lying to me? As I say, I have I did get a sneak preview early in the process and I enjoyed it as I've read more. I have enjoyed it. I have to say, I don't like buttering up my guess, but I have enjoyed this book. Um, Good. And so Good. we'll link to where you can get that in the show notes. And Rob Burley, thank you so much for joining me. Tell people where else they can keep up with you.
1: Where else they can keep up with me? Well, they can find me uh, sort of slightly notoriously on Twitter um, at Rob Burl. Um, uh, you can watch Beth Reggie's programmes if you want to see pro- interviews that I'm, in, I'm involved with. with um, and yeah, I would suggest humbly you read the book. Humbly.
0: Um, I'm at Charlotte A. Henry on Twitter. Uh, you can obviously find me at theedition.net or Um, I hope you sign up there and you can listen to the show wherever you get the, your podcast. So please follow it in your normal podcast app and share it with your friends and family Rob thank you once again and we'll see you all next week